we are. We're, uh, we're in church and we're talking about money. Here we go. We're kicking off a series right now. Uh, I want to welcome our church online and thank you for being here. Very grateful for your presence and your involvement. Uh, if you are online uh, and just viewing, I want to encourage you to log in and interact. And it's really a blessing when I get to do that. I, sometimes I jump on and at, towards the end of service, I go to my office and last few worship songs, get to interact with some of the people. But um, it really kind of adds a whole new element to doing church together when we can chat and connect. And I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, I want to thank you guys for being here. It's a beautiful day. Uh, I don't know what God is doing because we didn't plan it this way. Uh, the, the, the Sunday after we reach out to uh, our neighborhood and connect with 400 or so of our neighbors and invite them to come be part of our community, uh, we're talking about money. So come to church and hear about money kind of fits in a lot of the stereotypes people have about church, but I love preaching about money. And if you've been around the church for a while, you'll notice that this idea of, of these, these, this juxtaposition of what we put our hope and trust in of money just kind of comes out of me in, in almost everything I teach, uh, and it's inescapable. Uh, but I am just excited to invite you to engage in this concept with me during this series. We're going to talk about the main things that Jesus talks about in relation to money. Um, what I have learned in, in my, my journey uh, shapes what I believe, and I think that's true with you. What you've learned in your journey shapes what you believe. And then when you hear Jesus' teachings, you apply it to your journey, and it impacts or emphasizes or contradicts what you experience, and then we have to reconcile it, right? That's just part of our spiritual journeys in this world. Um, but what I have learned when it comes specifically about money is the way that I have grown the most is when I lean into obedience and then the profound lessons start. You know, when I lean into doing the things that I, I know I should do, then those lessons start to become real. They, they become more than just ideas. Uh, the, there's an overall theme in the Bible that this fits into, this overall narrative of uh, two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of the world. And these two kingdoms are at war. And it isn't the type of war that people expect with tanks and guns and airplanes and all that. It's a war inside of each one of us where there is a battle going on. And then the, the, the victory begins in our battle with Jesus is when we're in, in our spiritual battle is when we encounter Jesus. And when we encounter Jesus... The transformation is so huge. The very essence of who we are, why we exist, what is our purpose changes when we meet Jesus. And we start living in this new kingdom of God. But while we're living in the new kingdom of God, we're still living also physically in a broken, fallen world that we still are part of. And it's still part of us. And so we have this process that we go through when we start to live more in God's kingdom while we're living in the kingdom of the world. And when we fail, we struggle. That's called sin. When we grab onto the things of the world as if they're the things of eternity. So things of the temporary and things of, eternal, of eternity. And when we grab onto the things of the world, 
it's called sin. And then the, by the grace of God, we have repentance and forgiveness for our sin. That's what makes us God's people is that we're forgiven. And his word of the kingdom of God is written on our hearts. We learn in Jeremiah 33. So his word is written in our hearts and we are forgiven. And that's what keeps us growing in the kingdom of heaven. This process is called sanctification. Right? The idea that we have the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, and we are in the process. And so that's why when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he, he ends with, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because a new heaven and a new earth will be ushered in where the kingdom of heaven is here. And we are in a process of growing, and we're all at different stages and phases of that process. That's why the theme of all of Paul's writings to churches. Imagine you have a bunch of people growing in the same idea, but at different stages and phases coming from different experiences and perspectives with different giftings and different brokenness and different flaws and different things. The overall theme of Paul's teaching to all the churches is be gracious with each other. Be patient with each other. Forgive one another. Do all you can to live at peace with one another because your brokenness and your brokenness, you're not at the same stage. And don't assume you know what's better for the other. Just love and be kind and trust that God's working as we're growing in the same direction together. That's the overall theme of all of Paul's writings to all the churches. So we have these themes of of God's kingdom and the kingdom of man. And then we have these themes of being gracious and kind with each other. And so when you approach a topic like money, it's just another thing involved in the battle. Does money exist for the kingdom of the world or does it exist for the kingdom of God? And in between those two questions, God has chosen to put mankind to be fruitful and multiply. We are involved in bringing God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. That's our position. That's our purpose. So if we view money as just one of those other things, and we're using the metric of the kingdom of heaven, then that's where we have good stewardship, and we're working in God's will for God's purposes and God's kingdom. It's when we start to take the kingdom of the world and we start to place it as the purpose of things. That's the place we get our hope and our peace from. That's where Jesus goes to war. Because that is fighting for our faith. That is fighting for our hope. That is fighting for the position that only God can play in our life. Our source of eternal hope, eternal peace, eternal comfort. It can only come from God. And we're constantly being invited to cling on to the internal and claim it for now. But where the world comes in and the, and the trappings of the world and our own hearts and our own flesh is to place things, place our trust and our hope in temporary things. The Bible says moths destroy, rust eats it away. It's temporary. So the invitation is, are, do we view our life and our purpose as eternal or temporary? There's an overall theme in the Bible. And I'm going to ask you to participate in this. Um, for our church online, get ready to chat and share. And I want you to be free to be wrong, but I, I want to encourage you to avoid churchy cliches. Okay? And I've learned that most churchy cliches are one-word answers to complicated questions. What's the meaning of life, Jesus? Oh. <laughs> Technically, yes. But unhelpful. <laughs> to say it that way. 
So, if you were to choose an overall theme of the Bible, and, and I'm going to share what I think, but just know that I'm trying to use as few churchy words as possible in my response. But if you were to say, if I consider the message of the Bible from beginning to end, what is the most important thing to God? Consider the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and what you know, what do you think the most important thing to God is? I'm going to give you just a few seconds to pop that in the chat window, uh, share with your neighbor here, uh, what do you think the most important thing to God is? Okay, share with me some of your answers. Just what, what, what are some of the things that you answered? If you're in first service, I want you to hold off for a second. Uh, what were some of the, the thoughts you had? Most important things to God. Yeah. Yeah. Leave it to one of our board members to trump me with the words of Jesus. Like, <laughs> I was going to say something, but it's nothing like that. I should have said that. Yeah, that's good. He, he repeated uh, the greatest command is to love God and love self. That's absolutely, that's good. What other nuances or what other ways could you say what is the overall theme? Anyone? Who's afraid to be wrong right now? Don't you hate this? You ever been in a class and the teacher's trying to get you to say something and you don't know what it is, so you're afraid to answer? That's not what, what? Kindness. Okay. Borderline one-word churchy answer, but it's so relevant, I'll take it, because it's so good. Yeah. Redemption of creation. Good. That's good. Okay. I want you to give me some license here. I want you to take all of what you said and put it together and see if this fits. The most important thing to God is healthy and whole relationships. Relationships with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Relationship, a healthy and whole relationship with your past self, your current self, your future self. A healthy and whole relationship with your parents and children and neighbors and even enemies. You could argue that Jesus came to restore healthy and whole relationships among all things. And I can see how the redemption and kindness and love is all built into that. But if I had to use as few churchy answers and words as possible, I would say healthy and whole relationships is a major theme and purpose of the Bible and our existence here. The restoration, the equipping. And if you look at the, the idea of money and generosity in that framework, as if the purpose and the overall theme of the kingdom of God and of the teachings of Jesus is the healthy and whole relationships, it, it, takes, it takes the kind of taboo out of talking about money. Because we are just here in a temporary place with an eternal purpose to restore right relationships. We're going to carry that theme through the whole series and, and see how when Jesus talks about this, this is, he's actually saying this very thing, but in different aspects, in different ways to different people who have different questions because everyone's being growing at a different phase, different place, 
right? So Jesus teaches it in different ways. One of the reasons why we want to do this series is that uh, I find that um, without this perspective, this is how anxiety comes into my life. And then I would say this is one of the top four things that causes anxiety in life on earth is money. Jesus talked about it one-fourth of his teaching. Is about something to do with our relationship with money. We can follow, well, you can have a lot of money and have no, no peace. You can have a lot of money and have no foundation of hope. Money doesn't do anything to solve the true desires of our hearts. Money doesn't do anything to stop, stop us from experiencing suffering. And money can be your God, whether you have it or not. If you have no money and you're anxious all day about not having money, you have placed money as your source of peace, and that's called idolatry. If you direct your time and effort to just gathering more money so you can spend it on more temporary things, money is is an idol. That's called idolatry because it is your purpose your purpose, and your source of peace. I've followed some really, really good advice with money, and some really bad things have happened. Have you? You ever made some decisions with money, and you thought, I'm, with all the information I had, this is a good thing, and I'm going to do it, and then, anyone who thought it was a really good idea to sell your house at the height of the market, of the bubble, the real estate bubble in 2007, 2008, and you're excited, you're going to, we had plans, like we're going to sell it, and with that, we're going to give this, and we're going to buy that, and boom, 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 and then, housing market tanked. Some people, I've heard this story many times, some people in the late 90s thought it was a really good idea to give my whole retirement to my nephew who knows a lot about these internets, The dot-com bubble burst. Hey, let's put all of our money into stocks in 2008. Boom. Wasn't bad advice. But everything on this earth is so unpredictable, unstable, incapable, and unworthy of our trust and our hope. To place our hope and our, and our hope and our future in money is empty. In this Money Talk series, our hope is that you would enter into the season that is typically associated with the most anxiety around money for us in America, and that's the holiday season. It is, it's proven, uh, and it's just, I think you'd all agree, this is the time where financial issues become more and more pungent, <laughs> right? It just becomes stronger and stronger, and... Uh, Our hope and prayer for you is that you can truly enjoy the spirit of this holiday season by clinging on to the teachings of Jesus when it comes to finances and money and, 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 and engaging and living it out as the kingdom of heaven on earth. So let's pray and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word today. And I pray that as we get into this, that you would hold nothing back from us, God. I pray that where we feel conviction... Uh, just God as your, as your mouthpiece and, and messenger here, I just pray that any conviction would not be hurled at me as blame, 
but that, but that you would uh, just speak truth to our hearts and, and do the work that you want to do inside of us. Uh, I thank you for your faithfulness that you are eternal and you call us to eternal things and to participate in your eternal kingdom. I just thank you so much for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever thought about that? Your relationships are eternal. Your relationships are eternal. Mine are eternal. I have an eternal relationship with people. That is really cool to think about. C.S. Lewis says, you have never met a mere mortal. We're all eternal beings. It has been said that we, we are a body and we have a soul. But I would argue that we are an eternal soul. We just have a temporary body. If our perspective is eternal, Jesus' teachings make way more sense. And do you know how we, when we have these eternal perspectives, this is part of what it means when Jesus invites us to a new life in his kingdom. Because when we're going down the road and we're living our life in this world and we're hanging on to the things that this world tells us we need in order to have comfort and peace and stability, that's stuff like retirement funds, investments, property, no debt, you know, uh, discretionary spending or whatever. Uh, all of that is our source of peace and comfort. Uh, it's just empty. And Jesus invites us to an eternal perspective. And when we're going down that road in this life and holding on to those things, and then we meet Jesus. When you meet Jesus, he changes your relationship with everything. When you meet Jesus... Your purpose is so transformed. Your existence is so changed. The terminology that the Bible uses to describe this, that Paul uses and Jesus uses, is complete, utter death and a new life. It's not just your opinions change on something. It's your purpose, your essence, your spirit, your hope changes so much that there is a new life a new source of life, and a new destination in life. And this, this born-again experience. So when you experience Jesus, everything changes. So just put money into that stuff that changes. Everything changes. Your value and who you are changes. Who you think you are. What do you think your purpose is? It changes. And yeah, money is a part of that. And this is my problem with the prosperity gospel. With the prosperity gospel... It says, you know, before you met Jesus, you wanted health and wealth, and you wanted peace on earth, and you wanted comfort, and you wanted money. And then you meet Jesus, and Jesus is going to help you get all that. Jesus promises that you can have all that. And I've seen the destruction this has in people's lives when they put their hope and trust in the world and then add Jesus on it. It's crushing. And it makes people question when it fails them. It makes people question Jesus. But when you meet Jesus, he takes everything that we have put hope in on temporary things, and he says, put that in me. Trust in me. I will never leave you or forsake you. You can be rich and poor in the same week, and I am with you. Because you can make really, really good decisions and have really, really bad consequences. 
the world is so fragile and so empty. The story that Jesse read about Zacchaeus is such a beautiful story because we see right there this whole narrative playing out. Here was a rich man living for the world. And when you're living for the world, you compromise things for eternity for gaining the world, integrity, kindness. So you gain more of what your king is, what your God is, is the world. And the Zacchaeus experiences and meets Jesus. And his whole world is changed. He needs to repent and make right what he has done. So he promises to restore everything that he has taken in an immoral way and, and make right the, the damage that he's done in his life. And then he promises in the future, half of everything I have or every, everything I ever earn is going to care for people in generous spirit, generous heart. And this whole thing is done with this spirit of joy. He's excited to do it. And Jesus says at the end, behold, the kingdom of God is alive right now in Zacchaeus. He has been saved. He has been, he's living out this new life. This isn't saying that this is what you must do in order to be saved. He's looking back going, well, here is clear evidence of the entire story of being redeemed into the kingdom of heaven. And the evidence is in front of everyone's face. Let me just call this out. Behold. The kingdom of heaven is alive right now in Zacchaeus. He has been transformed through an interaction with Jesus completely. And here's the evidence, the whole narrative, the whole story right here. Wow. A sinner meets Jesus, changes everything. And the evidence of that is generosity, kindness, redemption, restoration. It's all right there. So, of course, Jesus would point it out. Look at this. It's all right here. This is our story. When we meet Jesus, our life changes. The reason for our savings account changes. The purpose of our income and our job and our career changes to eternal things from temporary things. And that's where we also find, when we put our trust and our hope in those things, we find that our source of peace and comfort change from something temporary to something deeply, deeply eternal. These two kingdoms never go away in Scripture. They're always there. We're always being invited to the kingdom, invited to the kingdom of God and away from the kingdom of the world. Because that's what a loving God would teach. That's what a loving God would remind us. That hold on to the things of eternity and let go of the things of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 through 16 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. 
when you see flesh and spirit, that's another juxtaposition of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. We no longer view each other or Jesus through the lens of the kingdom of the world and the flesh. But, but there's an eternal purpose for all things. This new creation is so evident. Look, it's all in the story of Zacchaeus. And it's, this, it's in your story if you've experienced Jesus. I do believe that there are many people who are faithful to go to church who have never experienced this life transformation where everything in their life exists for the sake of God's kingdom. Now, I want to insert something here uh, just to be clear. Oftentimes, in, because it's in my own story, filtered through my own life, and I get frustrated with my own self, when I teach about money, uh, the questions I get tend to be all the same, so that tells me something. Uh, like, is it okay to have money then? Does God not care about my comfort? And No, God cares about your comfort. He cares about your future. He cares about your health. You should be responsible, right? Uh, your motivation to have margin can be different, though. Your motivation to have room can be different than I'm scared about tomorrow. I don't know what God's going to do for me in 10 years. What if your motivation to have margin was when an urgent need comes up, I want to be able to help. And now we're talking about not only margin with money, we're talking about margin with time, with resources, with ideas, with creativity, with even emotional margin. I want to be a healthy person because I'm a better pastor when I'm healthy. Believe me, I've been a pastor when I've been unhealthy, and I'm not a very good pastor. But if I have emotional margin, emotional space, it's why you usually can't reach me on a Friday. <laughs> I'm off. I'm recharging. I'm spending time with my God. I am, I am getting healthy. But if, you, if, if we live with margin for the purpose of something eternal, something kingdom, that even gives what God has blessed us with purpose. And many of you have been blessed. Many people, many of you online and in person, we are a very blessed church. Many of you have been blessed with much. And uh, your generosity is inspiring and life-giving. And you're not wrong for having a savings and being responsible and being wise. But I find that those people who are most affected by the teachings about money that I get most of the response from are people who have the greatest capacity for generosity. If God has blessed you with much, I believe it's because he believes in you that you have a tremendous capacity to steward what he's given you and trusted you with to advance his kingdom for eternal purposes. God believes in you. That's why he blesses people. It's been true. Just, it's just true. <laughs> Search the scriptures to see if I'm saying anything wrong. Uh, we are blessed because he believes in us and trusts us. There's a story that Paul writes. So we've been in 2 Corinthians. Now we're in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul uh, is writing to the church in, in, in Corinth in this second letter. In the first letter, uh, it's a beautiful letter. 
something that happens in that first letter is that uh, the church in Corinth uh, acknowledges and agrees to be a part of um, basically a church network that all the churches are going to help each other and support each other. And the church in Jerusalem is going through a real struggle financially. And so there was this commitment from all the churches to send money and funds to the church in Jerusalem, which is kind of the headquarter church, right? Uh, we're going to send it because they're going through a hard time. They're in the heart of Judaism. They have the most opposition of any of these, uh, uh, of our churches in the outlying towns. They have this opposition and this pressure, and they need our resources. Then the second letter comes, and Paul in this section reminds the church in Corinth that they made a commitment to participate in supporting the church in Jerusalem, but they weren't doing it. And now Paul, being Paul, acknowledged as the head and the authority of all these churches, could have written a letter that said something to the effect of, uh, you know, you're a Christian, so you need to keep your word, and Christians keep their word. And you're being a bad example by not keeping your word. So you need to send the money that you promised to the church in Jerusalem because you said you would. And then he could have used some spiritual abusive thing by saying guilt and shame and power and control to try to impose some type of behavior out of the church in Corinth. But Paul didn't do that. Because if Paul would have done that, he would have taken the, the very thing about generosity that makes it generosity. And that is a joyful heart. Where he specifically tells them, don't give out of compulsion. Don't give out of guilt. You're, you'd be, you wouldn't be operating in the kingdom of heaven if that were the case. So Paul wants people to grow in their sanctification, grow in their faith, grow in their understanding. So what does he do? He tells them the story about the church in Macedonia. Macedonia, there's a reason why we don't hear about Macedonia other than this story. Macedonia was this small poor town. And there was a church there, a small church that was known to be poor. And when, when Paul talks about this blessing to the church in Jerusalem um, and what it means, he uses this Greek word called charis. It's where we get the word uh, charismatic or charity, right? It's the, it means an un earned gift. This unearned gift is what Jerusalem is receiving when we send it to them. It's this gift of charis, this gift of, of compassion and love and, and peace. And, but something interesting, when he describes the poor church in Macedonia that is sacrificially giving and going above and beyond, he says, it goes, they go above and beyond their means in their sacrifice. The way the Macedonians described their privilege to give was the same Greek word, charis. It was their gift, their privilege, their undeserved grace and mercy bestowed upon them that they could give sacrificially and generously. That is, that is so kingdom of God minded. And I think if you search your heart, it's so true. It is better to give than to receive. We all prefer to give gifts than to receive gifts. It's so beautifully true. We had uh, a couple people, this happened a couple times while we were fundraising for this church. 
And I've been making fundraising calls this last year to a few people that are making commitments. But there's an interaction that happened uh, where I kind of inserted myself into someone's spiritual decisions <laughs> in this fundraising ask. We were, we just, Heather and I drove around the country. We met with people that we knew, some people we didn't know, some people that we knew that other people knew. Tell them we're going to start a church in Benton County and uh, ask them to get on board financially. Um, and someone offered a large recurring gift. Large in my mind, giving her perspective. And I'd made a judgment based on her lifestyle and stage of life that uh, it was too much what she was asking to give. And so I started to explain that, you know, you're not our only one that we're fundraising from. And, and there's other people that have more means that could maybe give more and don't put yourself out. Don't, don't. And she said, don't steal this joy from me. Why are you trying to steal this joy? And I realized I got to get out of the way. God's doing something here that's beyond me. And who is it for me to tell someone to not be generous towards God? That happened with two people in different, different ways, but that same theme, that same thing came up. And you think I would have learned after the first one. But they said almost the same thing. The joy of stewarding God's kingdom for God's purposes is so profoundly beautiful that it's called an undeserved gift. <laughs> and that's the way Paul decided to encourage the church in Corinth to give. Here's the church in Macedonia in their poverty. They consider it a gift to be able to give. And, and then he directs them and he says, I want you to give in the same way because it's how you will grow in God's kingdom. It's how you will be strengthened. It's how you will fulfill your purpose and experience this undeserved gift of generosity. Do you see how there's just a different kingdom at hand here? Very different than that of the world. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you see? This is kingdom of God math. Your accountant would not say this is wise math. An abundance of poverty or an abundance of joy and extreme poverty results in an overflowing in a wealth of generosity. How many times do we think, I can't, I can't give because I can't pay my cable bill. I can't give because at the end of the month there isn't enough money. I want you to give not because there's any organization that I think needs your money, but because having a life where generosity is part of your life is the most rich life to live. It's where you will experience the grace of God in your life. 
Verse three, for they gave according to their means. Do you see that? They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So there was this, this uh, I, I believe there's a proportion that the grace of God has for you. Like, give according to your means. Like, don't martyr yourself. Jesus already martyred on the cross and, and died for our sins and for all things. We don't need to die and crucify ourselves for anybody at this point. We're not, so, so there's an according to their means. But then there's this will of great, this will of compassion and charis that you have in you that uh, you are free to live in and live in freedom, sacrifice something for the sake of something else. It was this according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What a beautiful heart posture to have. What about you? And, and I like to think this through. I think about this for myself every once in a while. Let's, let's say, uh, how are you doing in living in the kingdom of the world and living in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, if you're human, it's a struggle because um, you exist. Uh, if you have a hard time admitting it's a struggle, that just shows me where you are in your struggle. <laughs> uh, we are all wrestling with different areas of our life in ways where we're trusting in the kingdom of God and putting our trust in the kingdoms of the world. And money is just one of those. But I think it's really good to take stock of our life and once in a while look back. And I always like to look back as an independent auditor that I don't ever get to talk to. I want an independent auditor to look at my life and what would they say about where I spend my money? What would they say about what I put my trust in? What would they say about where my hope lies? And here's the catch. I don't get to explain to them the reasons I do what I do. They're just going to objectively look. Because I can make excuses, and we all do. I can make excuses why I didn't give to that person I know that was in need. And it's usually some type of excuse that's wrapped up in me inserting myself between their relationship and God. By saying something like, well, they're the ones that decided to buy that thing. And everyone knows that that thing costs money. And if it broke, like I actually heard this once. Someone said, uh, they're the ones that decided to buy a Dodge used car, and everyone knows that Dodge transmissions go out at 60,000 miles, so they're going to have to deal with that. They made their own bet. Like, inserting yourself into someone's decision-making process. Because remember, we all make really good decisions that can turn out bad. And to have someone just double down on blame for you for putting yourself in a bad situation. We're never called to do that. We're never called to insert ourselves, but we, we have all these excuses why we're not generous. And then we use these cliches that, that can be true, but we use them as excuses like, you know, uh, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him to fish, you feed him for life, but yet you never teach him to fish. You just use that as a reason to not give a man a fish. Or that guy who's there, he, uh, he, there's jobs all over the place, he can just go get a job. 
our position as stewards of God's kingdom to bring his eternal kingdom to earth as it is in heaven should be what we do regardless of someone else's situation. It's because it's who we are. We're God's people. We're generous. That's what we do. Why? Not because they deserve it or that's not, the, that kind of, that's not generosity. The whole point of generosity is it's undeserved. Okay. Here's where I want to land this. I'll have the band come back up. Oh, wow. That last two minutes was 10. So uh, sorry about that. But let me finish with this. Uh, this is always the blessing of the first sermon of a series. Is I've got the whole series in my head. I'm trying to find that landing point of the first part. Here's the deal. Generosity when we take steps of obedience and generosity, it directs our hearts to the most important thing in God's narrative. And that is healthy relationships between God and man. And generosity kills judgment and condemnation. Generosity allows your heart to go towards something. Um, generosity is this heart posture that God has towards us. Jesus didn't say, well, you're the one who keeps sinning, so I'm not going to die on the cross for you. He says, while you were yet sinning, I died for you. And that's the way that we get to love each other with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I love that God ties the way we love God directly to loving one another. The only evidence of your love for God is your relationships with one another. There's no other physical evidence on earth of your love and devotion to God than your relationships with other people. And make no mistake, Jesus and God, the whole Bible emphasizes that. How we treat the orphans, the aliens, and the widows is the indicator of our love for one another. And you see where God gets involved and we see the wrath of God throughout the Old Testament is when those who he's trusted to be generous refuse to be generous. Then bad things happen <laughs> because God's love for the vulnerable won't be stopped. What a privilege it is that God is inviting us to share in generosity, to build eternal relationships and eternal health. As we worship in these next few songs, let's really direct our hearts towards God and let your heart dream. Let your heart dream what it would look like if. Just think of our church community. What if our church community doubled in generosity? What would it look like? How many neighbors could we reach? How many people could we equip with the gospel? How many Zacchaeus stories could we help write through generosity? And if there's someone in your life that you know has a need, I just pray that you, uh, I ask you to pray that God would transform your heart to finding the opportunity to be generous. And I use the word transform purposefully because it is a, like a, a new transformation. Martin Luther said there's three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Let's pray that God uses us in a radical way. We have capacity. We have capacity 
to bring God's kingdom to earth through generosity. And that is our gift of grace, that we can do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that even today you would spark in us uh, and rekindle in us this heart of generosity that you call us to. I pray that we would see the world around us as opportunity to bring your kingdom. And I pray that we would see the things you've trusted us with. Some of us have entrusted us with money, some time, some with skills and talents, some with kindness, some with an overabundance of joy. I pray that we would seek ways to be generous and live out your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.